In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, reserved with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S. 2022. Now here we go. I think leadership is not as hard as everyone else thinks it is. Leadership is you do the right thing at the right time and you lead with your heart and you love people in general. And if you treat them the way you would treat your family or your wife or your kids, magically they start to do things for you and step up for you and believe in you. So if you were to go into a restaurant and you're in my position today, you jump on the line and start making sandwiches or you jump on the grill and you start flipping burgers with them or whatever the heck I'm doing at that moment when I'm in the restaurant, but you actually just go in there and do it, you instantly build a culture where people want to work for you and want to go the extra mile for you. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. How in the world is Greg Majewski not a household name? Greg is one of the most epic restaurateurs I know. This guy was mentored by Dave Thomas of Wendy's, grew Jimmy John's from three to 300 locations, and has acquired and scaled some of the most famous fast casual restaurants in the country. Today, we sit down to discuss his formula for repeatable success and his commitment to mentoring others for the betterment of our entire industry. So I went to school like every kid was told, had to go to college, and I completely screwed up. I went to college and had way too much fun and never went to class and was on the verge of being thrown out. I had a 0.6 GPA after my freshman year because I never attended class at all. And I had to have a meeting with the dean and the president of the university and had to beg for them to give me another semester. And as I was sitting there and I was begging them, I said, how are you going to blame me? I go, I got A's on your final exams and every test I took, but I never went to class. And I go, so your classes are just too easy if I didn't have to attend. And the only reason why I got the GPA was because of some stupid thing in the syllabus that I never read. And they looked at me and said, fine, we'll give you another chance. I got home and my parents cut me off. And I had to learn how to pay for school. And that sort of started my sort of role in the restaurant world and everything that I had to do because I had to work every job in the world to be able to survive and pay for food and pay for my tuition and everything else that I had to do at that time because it was a lesson that I needed to learn. And so I started working in sorority houses as houseboys. I was a bar back. My first actual restaurant job was a delivery driver for Mellow Mushroom. And I just sort of put myself through school and paid the bills and everything else that I had to have and realized that I had to work my butt off to get to where I wanted to go. And I never, ever wanted to have to eat the way I had to survive and have other people provide me food during that one year, those couple of years where people were taking care of me and house moms were leaving keys so I could get into sorority houses so I could get free food. I just never wanted to go through that again. And so I decided that I was going to 
actually take the advice that my dad always gave me, which would work my butt off and we're outworked everybody and good things would happen. And so as school progressed, I got a degree in accounting. I was one of two international forensic tax accountants at Arthur Anderson that year. And they told me to take the semester off. And so I'm like, I've worked, I've put myself through school. I can't do that. I got to find something to do. And somehow a guy by the name of Jimmy found my resume and picked up the phone and offered me an internship. And that sort of started the road to where I ended up, which is the fastest journey I think anyone in my age would have ever imagined to get to the next level. Joined Jimmy as an intern. He offered me to come on full time and match my salary at Arthur Anderson. Uh, so became controller, CFO, chief operating officer, and CEO all within 18 months. How old were you at that time? So just 22. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. I mean, so I joined the company and there was 30 restaurants and I left at 300 open and 700 sold. Did you feel prepared at that time? I mean, you had the the benefit of youthful exuberance. No, I knew nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I was in a position where Jimmy knew a lot and the rest of the team knew how to work hard. And it was pretty much who could work harder and stay focused and who could drive the results. And again, would it have ever happened that way again? Absolutely not. It was just every possible thing that could possibly go my way went my way at that moment. And I took advantage of every opportunity I had and every chance he gave me to do something else, I jumped on it. And I wouldn't back down and I would never say no. And I wanted to be the guy and I wanted to learn and get to the point where I could say I did everything. And as long as he kept giving, I kept taking. So let's talk about that jump from 22 to 24, right? From intern to CEO. Who did you have to become in order to go from point A to point B? How did your ideology have to change? How did you have to change? to be able to be effective in that role? I don't think anything about me changed at that point. I mean, I learned instantaneously that being a kid and goofing around and enjoying that part of my life was gone when I screwed up at school. So I never went back to that spot. I never went back to the kid that was jumping around from party to party or hanging out or getting drunk or anything like that. I did that all in my freshman year and I sort of I grew up way too fast and I missed out on things because of it, but I had to act in a maturity level that most 22 and 23 year old kids don't have, but they also didn't have to go through what I did to get to that point. And they didn't have the foundation and the people around you to help make you better. And I was very, very lucky that I grew up in a family that my dad was an entrepreneur and he worked his butt off and I saw him struggle and I saw the ups and downs and I saw him come close to losing everything and all that. And I knew that the only way he got through it was he worked harder than everybody. And so when I got an opportunity, I was not going to screw it up. I was going to outwork everybody. And if I didn't know how to do something, I was going to figure it out and I was going to learn. I asked, I found mentors, I begged people for advice. I mean, you name it, I did it so I can make sure I could continually get the upper hand and continue to have the opportunities that I was lucky to have. Hard work aside, because I think it's an industry where a lot of people work hard. Now, whether they're working hard in the right direction or not, whether they're working hard in a way that benefits them is a different conversation. But you are this prolific leader that has led amazing organizations. And 
candidly, in my 30s, in my mid-30s, was really where I began to internalize that leadership role, which really, for me, had as much to do with making the hard decisions as it did with like leading and inspiring the team and strategy and setting trajectory. That's certainly not the easy stuff, but it's a lot easier than firing somebody that's been with you for seven years that you love deeply and is no longer the right person for the role. So I think leadership is not as hard as everyone else thinks it is. I think leadership is you do the right thing at the right time and you lead with your heart and you make your people and you truly love the team that you have and you love people in general. And if you treat them the way you would treat your family or your wife or your kids, magically they start to do things for you and step up for you and believe in you. So if you were to go into a restaurant and you're in my position today or you're in my position back then and you jump on the line and start making sandwiches or you jump on the grill and you start flipping burgers with them or making pokey or whatever the heck I'm doing at that moment when I'm in the restaurant, but you actually just go in there and you do it, you instantly build a culture where people want to work for you and want to go the extra mile for you because you're in their shoes and they've not seen people in these positions do those things. You see the photo ops, you see people doing it fake and they come in and they're like, oh yeah, he's here for this. And then he walks out within 30 minutes. But I mean, if you really are in there with them and doing the stuff that sucks, then you build a culture and people want to follow you. So when I learned how to run a Jimmy John's, I was sent down to West Lafayette, Indiana, and Bob Norman was the GM, and he wanted to break me. His entire thing was there was no way that this kid is going to learn how to do it. And he was much older than me, and we started playing a game. We worked the night shift. Night shift started at 4. We got out of there about 4 in the morning. And so every day we started showing up 30 minutes earlier, an hour earlier, two hours earlier. And by the end, we were actually going back to, I was going back to my hotel, sleeping an hour, getting up, showering, going back and opening the restaurant, working open to close with them. And he wanted to outdo me, but I wouldn't let it be done. And by the end, he looked at me and he said, I got your back. You can do it. And it was just because that's the mentality to have. I want to be best and to be the best I have to take every job that no one else wants to take and not be afraid to do it do I want to go into a bathroom and clean the bathroom every time I walk into a restaurant absolutely not do I still do it to this day yes and I will continue to do it until I'm no longer in this industry and it's something that I feel sets the tone for what I expect and people start to do it so we worked Lollapalooza as another example a couple weeks ago and I ran and worked grill and the fryers with my cooks for the four days after I'm open to close every day. And I was there running the fryer outside over the heat. And the bond that is instantly formed with everybody else, because you're sitting there doing this job that no other CEO in my position would be sitting out there doing and having a blast doing it is what builds a culture. And because of those things, I feel we really do make change with the way people feel. And Yeah, will they all stay forever? No. But will they remember the fact that we did it? And if I asked them to do something today above and beyond, would they jump? Absolutely. And it comes from being there with them and actually doing what they do. And then when they're in a bind, helping them and figuring out a way to take care of them. I mean, I have put my name on apartments and car loans and you name it and given down payments for people to pay back because I knew they were in a bind and I would do it again and again and again because I generally want what's best for my team. What's the other side of that? So culture is obviously the engine that drives growth and you are a master when it comes to scaling and growth. 
What are the other essential elements that create the success that you've seen in terms of growth and profitability? So, I mean, like in every restaurant, it's a three-legged stool. You got to have the team and the culture. You got to have a great operation and you got to have great food. And you have to be able to have in that operation customer service. You got to be above and beyond. Those are the three things in the restaurant industry or any business and whatever you do. If you don't have your core principles locked down, you can't grow and you can't jump through and you can't get to that next level. And not every restaurant always has those and not every other concept always works. But again, if you have those three things and you do those three things well, nine out of 10 times, you have a better chance at success than without. And people forget that you have to have all three or all four, depending on the industry, humming at all times to make those work. If one end of a stool isn't on the ground and it's broken, you can't continue. And so many times people are like, oh, my food's great, but they forget about the two other two things. And it has to be all or nothing. What do you think about marketing? What is your perspective on marketing as you look to grow into new markets? So I think marketing today is completely different than what marketing was 20 years ago. Unfortunately, this generation has moved to their devices and not talking and not communicating with each other face to face so that the opportunity to attract them and get their attention through the old media standards are gone. So I think marketing today becomes a lot more crucial in how you do it and where you target and who you target. Is it important to be on the social media platforms? Absolutely. Is it important to not be stupid on the social media platforms just to get likes? Absolutely. And there's times where I fight my own marketing team continually because I think we're acting just to get someone to click a like button, but not actually building the brand and driving sales. And it's a combination of all of that and the things you have to focus on. And it's a hell of a lot harder before. So if I had to go in into a new market I still believe the best way to do it is go in and be part of the community, be part of the grassroots movement, get your food and your product in the mouths of the people or whatever your service is out there for people to see and know. And by being a good human and a good person and a good business in the community and help supporting it, that is still the best way to build a business. And it's hard to do so. It's a ton of work to get out there and hand out samples or go to events and give kids free baseballs and all this other stuff that you got to do to build that trust in the community. And for whatever reason, we've forgotten how to do that. Everyone wants the quick bite of the apple to get an instant results. And business isn't instant. A store or a business center or whatever you're doing or a car wash, it takes time, but it takes time because you win people over with other things, not just the fact that you are standing there or you're on the corner. It's so interesting that you say that. This is a theme that's come up a lot in conversations like this. The fact that you market your restaurant outside of your restaurant. Yeah, obviously everybody's working to market it within the four walls of their restaurant. I interviewed a guy ages ago. His name's TK Pillen. He owns uh, Veggie Grill, this fast casual vegetarian concept, which as I'm sure you can imagine with most people in the world not being vegetarians, not incredibly exciting. But the food's good. And it's objectively good. And so his strategy was he launched and he said, I had a food in mouth strategy. I stood outside everywhere I could and I just gave people food to eat. And the food was good. So then they came to the restaurant and he goes, all these years later with the umpteen locations that they have, he goes, it's the only strategy we've ever found that works. If you feed people your food and your food is good, more people will come to your restaurant. 
you hate to oversimplify, but it really feels like it's that simple. But it is. I mean, that's the same philosophy that Jimmy had. Jimmy made us go out and sample 50 samples, 100 samples a day out of every store. And we then built that and built a grid system around our locations that we went on repeat. And I still use that system in every restaurant I open today. And it's a way to know that if you truly believe in what the product is, you have to have people try it. And it's hard, but it's the right way to do it. And I learned that the first day that I walked into Jimmy John's, I heard him. I heard Jimmy speaking about how important it was to get his damn sandwich in the mouth of people. Because once they have it in their mouths, they're going to realize they never want to go to Subway again. When it was 100% true, but you had to get it in their mouths to know. We met at a dinner, an industry dinner at the NRA concert, NRA conference in Chicago. And after we met, I walked back to my hotel and I called my wife on the phone and I woke her up out of a dead sleep because your story around mentorship and the dynamics within this industry as you were coming up was mind boggling. It feels like a movie, maybe a movie that only restaurant industry people would obsess over. But I want you to talk to me about how mentorship played a role in your career and who your early mentors were. So I was lucky. I mean, from having my dad and uncles and all that, obviously you always have your family as mentors. But as I started getting promoted and building Jimmy John's, I got the opportunity to learn from some of the greatest people in this industry. And they came to me because they knew that I was this young kid in a tough position. I was trying to learn and they were seeing what we were doing and that they took me under their wings and sort of helped me become who I was in this industry. So I was in an IFA conference back in 2000 or 2001, I can't remember. And Dave Thomas was sitting outside the room waiting for me to come out. And he asked me point blank, Greg, do you have a couple of minutes to have a cup of coffee with me? And how do you tell this guy no? And I'm like, duh, 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 duh. and you go down and talk to him. And the first thing he said to me was, I will help you. I will teach you. And you can use me for anything that you need. He goes, but you have to promise me one thing is that once you get to a position that you are now able to return this favor, it is your responsibility to do the same thing for the restaurant industry because we don't have enough people that want to keep the industry alive. And there's no true secrets in this industry. No one has any magic sauce. And his thing was, make sure that you get back and help the next guy become great. And I looked at him, I said, absolutely. I goes, but sir, I'm never going to be that next guy. I'm never going to have that opportunity. And he looked at me and he said, trust me, you will have that opportunity. And he then mentored me for the next two years and would call me every other week. I didn't call him. He called me just to check in and ask me how I was doing. And that I'll never, ever forget being that lucky person that he picked. And I'm sure he picked a million others. And he then told stories about how back in the day when they were started, they all shared ideas. And now this group of the biggest restaurant chains in America, were, you can know them all. They weren't afraid to talk to each other and help each other get to the next point because they knew there was so much space for all of them. He said that about everyone except one. <laughs> and he was true to that. And now it's my opportunity to give back and help make sure that other people know and don't make the same mistakes that I made or that he made and help better us in any which way that we can. It's bananas. Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's, was your mentor. And to layer on top of that, Dave worked in collaboration with every household fast food brand one could think of, with the exception of one. Everybody worked together, sharing 
secrets, best practices, lessons learned? So, I mean, they all felt franchising was a unique way to grow a business. And because when they all started and then they all started doing it, it was something new. The ideas were open. And it's no different than what it is today. And you were at one of the dinners and you got to see it firsthand, how we all interact and how there's groups of us that we'll tell each other everything and help each other solve any problem. And we do it without wanting any credit or anything, just because we generally like each other. I mean, there's not a lot of people that go through the things that you go through every day. And so to find a group that you're able to sort of surround yourself with to help you through them is makes you an extremely lucky person. And right now I'm one of the luckiest people around because I have an incredible group of people that stand there and will help me and support me. And, hey, I'm looking for somebody. And they'll say, hey, I got this person for you. Or, hey, why don't you do this? And we do it right back. And it's unheard of. I couldn't call to, if I was running a sports team, I couldn't call and say, hey, I need a great GM. Who do you recommend? I ain't going to give you my second guy. Here, though, if I have someone who needs a great ops person I don't have the promotion and it's a great opportunity for them. I recommend my own people to them. And that's how you, again, build that culture. It's how you build the team and why not help everybody? Teamwork makes the dream work. That's why Snibs is encouraging you to team up with a coworker during their buy one, give one sale. For a limited time, when you buy one pair, they'll give you a free pair of their best-selling non-slip shoe, trusted by 100,000 plus workers, the original Space Cloud. This is the most comfortable work shoe you'll ever wear. They guarantee it. Use the promo code COWORKERFC, which gives you access to the buy one, get one offer. Visit snibs.co forward slash full comp and use the offer code COWORKERFC to get two pairs of shoes for the price of one. Let's talk about the years in between Jimmy John's and Craveworthy Brands. Was that your Jesus in the desert time? What was your objective for your life coming out of Jimmy John's, knowing what you're capable of and knowing that you've experienced all of this success out the gate? You do go to Mongolian concepts, but then you decide to strike out on your own. Talk to me about those years, your plan for your life, how it manifested and the lessons you learned during that time. So when I left Jimmy John's, I had I had every major company in America trying to recruit me. And I just decided I didn't want to work for anyone else ever again. It was not always a pretty situation. And sometimes things don't work out the way that you hoped or they were intended. And so I then went on and I just, I did consulting. I built my Jimmy John's business. I worked in different things and I was happy. I didn't need any more. And I didn't need to do anything else. I was just happy helping other people, consulting, designing brands, designing restaurants. I mean, there's multiple companies that I've been a part of that I've helped design that are now 100 units or plus. And I mean, I was just enjoying what I was doing from behind the scenes and sort of being forgotten. And then in 2016, one of my old regional directors of Jimmy John's put together a coaching tree of all the people that I now out in other places and who touched and how I helped build and stuff like that. And he goes, Greg, you're, you're wasting your talents not helping other people. Don't do it for you. Do it for the fact that you made me better and got me to this position. And I started thinking, okay, maybe I should do something again. And so in 2017, finally, I decided I was going to start building an idea for a platform company. And it took a lot longer than I ever thought it would take. 
And everybody thinks that Craveworthy sort of, hey, out of the blue, we opened up in January and that it was just an instantaneous, hey, we're the hottest thing in the world. But I've been building this for the last five years. And we're now at a point where it's no longer behind the scenes and that we can let everybody else know what we're doing. But I wanted to do it quietly because I didn't want the light on me. I didn't want anyone knowing what I was doing yet. And again, I spent my time with my family. My wife and I, when I first left, um, lost a little girl right away. And I just made a promise that I would be home and I'd be present as we raised our kids. And that was something that was very, very important to me. And I got to do that. And again, getting into this young, getting married young, having kids extremely young. I mean, I'm 47 today and my youngest one is sophomore. My older one is in sophomore in college. So, I mean, I I was around and present continually for their lives. I got to coach t-ball and basketball and attend all the games. And that's what I wanted to do after the trouble and the issues that we had. And I wouldn't trade any of that. It was the greatest time of my life because I got to see my kids grow up and got to be there for them. How would you describe Craveworthy Brands to people? Is it an incubator? Is it an accelerator? Craveworthy is really a platform company that we take emerging brands, and our goal is to get them to the legacy status and make them nationwide. So we find brands that either have had an opportunity once before or never had an opportunity before to grow at a rate that they should based on the level of food and the level of just, it has to be food more than anything that is out there and in the brand. And it has to be something that I think can compete with the others that are already out there. Um, So we take them, grow them, and then obviously, hopefully make them all successful, knowing the fact that not every brand that anybody touches is ever going to be a home run. Not every brand is going to work, but we know that we can help prevent a lot of the mistakes that were made in those smaller stages because we've all done it before. And the team that we built can make sure that, hey, you don't do something that you would have done that we did that would have cost you that prevents your growth. So we can help accelerate that growth pattern. Our goal is obviously that every brand that we bring in is going to be that next home run. But knowing and being realistic with ourselves that we may not be able to grow every one of them. And that's okay. We do our best. We make sure everybody gets what they need out of it. And we learn from it and we go on to the next one and continue to acquire and bring in new brands to make sure and see which ones go. Each brand is a baby and we take care of that until it's time for it to go on its own, whichever that may be. I would assume that most of the brands that you end up working with with Craveworthy are founder-led organizations. Is there a common thread amongst those founders, qualities that you're looking for, qualities that lead them to your doorstep? The most common thing is, is that people who join us or people, brands that bring themselves to us all want to get to that next level. They all know that they can get there. They all believe in what their product is, and they know that they can do it, and they're looking for a way to get there faster because they also have come to the realization that if they keep doing the way that they've been doing it, they're not going to be able to get to the point that they want to in the time they want to. But they're smart enough to know that it's okay to partner. It's okay to give up part of it. I've had brands that have come to me that I've said no to because the owner wants to keep full control of everything. and doesn't want to give everything up, just wants to use my name. That's not the way this works. You've got to conform a little bit and let us fix the issues that we all have to make sure that you're able to scale to the proper point. And what's remarkable about this industry and the franchise industry more than anything is that most people, most franchisors care about them. And the franchisor e that grow and get out of that emerging process, 
make sure that they care about their franchisees and make sure that the franchisees are winning because they're the ones that are going to sell the next store and the next store and the next store for you, not you, not me. It's going to be your franchise base that's going to get people excited about it because they're going to run your operation so damn good that the person that walks in is going to be like, man, I can do this. Let's get one of these. And too many of the franchisors that are out there, especially once they get bigger, forget that and don't care. They only care about raising the top line. They don't care about making sure that the bottom line stays good so that franchisee wants to continue to grow. They want to raise their number that they get paid off of. And I've never been that person. I want to make sure my franchisees win continually. Because if they win, by golly, I will win. I may not make as much as the next franchisor or the franchisor that nickels and dimes on rebates and everything else as that are out there. But my franchisees are going to be the happiest. And they know that we're going to bend over backwards to make sure they're successful. That's why people come to us. You look back on the years before Craveworthy. And it was a simpler time, I would imagine, right? There's just a massive difference between consulting, which is in large part this thing that we do to the side, as opposed to like actively running these operations. I would assume that you're still working hard, but you're probably working smarter. How do you achieve balance? How do you achieve a stable quality of life when most people that are running a single unit or multi-unit operation are just buried. And you've got, I mean, I don't even know how many boxes you have under your belt. Hundreds, I would assume. If you're in this industry or if you're the guy leading your company, it can't be a job. And that sounds as stupid as how stupid it is. But if you're really going to build your company and really be excited about what you do every day, it can't be work. So the time that I spend doing this, I don't feel like I'm ever working. I truly enjoy every second of it. And I'm happy when I'm doing it. As happy as when I'm playing with my kids or going out with my wife or any of those things, I find joy in everything that I do every day. And that's sort of the difference between when you hear the stories about Steve Jobs and Disney and they all just loved what they do. It was never work. And that's sort of the way that I feel every day. Like I don't ever dread about having to get up and get going. When my alarm goes off, I want to move. I want to start the day. And I, when I get home, it's okay. I don't know what off is either. And most people, when they start getting in that drudge of, oh my God, I got to go in. Oh my God, everything's burying me. You got to refocus and decide if that's what you're truly passionate about if you want to get to that next level. And if you're worried about, and again, stress of because things are tough and how you're going to pay your bills and are you going to make payroll and all those things, that's part of life. That's part of being an entrepreneur. And not everybody is made to have that kind of stress. But those that are and are able to deal with it, it's because you truly just love what you do and you know that you're going to get through it. And I mean, Stressing about making payroll is usually the biggest thing that weighs on people's minds. And again, the best always know that they're going to get there and find a way to achieve no matter how hard it is. This is a tangential, somewhat of an aside. I was listening to Seth Rogen, the stoner actor guy. He (laughs) He was on this podcast and he said the most interesting thing, which is he said, I've been in Hollywood a really long time. And I've seen a bunch of people succeed and a bunch of people fail. And I can honestly tell you that the only difference 
between those that succeed and those that fail that I found the only discernible difference is that the ones that succeed don't give up. You think that's true in our industry? It's true in every industry. I mean, as many times as you get kicked in the gut, it's how many times you stand back up. How many times do you go to an investor and get told no, or they're not interested, or they don't want to be a part of it? And those things are just, they're earth shattering. How many times do you have to rebuild your restaurant because your GM leaves or your head chef leaves? You want to cry during those moments. And But again, if you can pick yourself back up and dust yourself off and continue to believe in what you know is the best thing that you can do, then you're looking at having opportunities that make you great. Again, if you give up, you're never going to have that chance. And people forget that because it's hard. Life is hard. You can go and collect a paycheck and never have to worry about how you're going to make a bill again because you can live within those means. An entrepreneur or somebody who's starting something up has to truly be worried about how am I going to get money to cover this month? Well, because the only person that can write that check is you. That, that becomes scary. And people give up because that stress is too much. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I don't believe there's any rules. Anything that has ever been done before or how we do things isn't the way that it should continue to do it. There's a better way out there. You continually have to find the best way to do something in today's time. Just because in the past, uh, hey, look at the amount of data and tech that we had. Restaurants had no tech. So now we're overdone in tech and people need to start saying no because it buries them because the basics of the industry don't change. Sales, minus food costs, minus labor, control your cost and rent. That's going to get you to profitability. And then everything else is just how to make it better. So it's our jobs to disrupt everything else, to try to build those three things to make them the most beneficial aspect of our business. And it's gambling and trying some things. It's allowing people that have never had an opportunity to get into this restaurant into your business because you believe in them. It's building a culture where everybody is one and that we're able to function as one and that it doesn't matter what they do or how they act. But when you're together in your team, you're all just one unit. And that's how you're going to disrupt and, you know, change the industry or change your future. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Greg Majewski. For more information on Craveable Brands, visit craveablebrands.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.